And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Peter Hammond. He's founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. Peter, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thanks so much, Dan. Always good to be with you. Before we open the mics, you were explaining to me that it's very cold right now uh, where you are. Can you tell us just a little bit about um, life in Cape Town right now? Well, many people may not think of Africa being a place where you can get snow and hurricanes, but Cape Town is one of those parts of Africa where that happens. We have just been coming out of a severe drought with serious major water restrictions, and it ended dramatically with a storm, as in a hurricane-strength storm. They were predicting uh, winds in excess of 100 miles an hour. Uh, the, uh, we had roofs blown off. We had major shopping centers closed, and all the schools in the whole of Cape Town, first time in my lifetime, were closed because of the storm. And uh, there was uh, this waves, uh, we're talking about 10 meters, that's over 30 feet waves coming over our coastal roads, uh, coastal roads closed, uh, tremendous fires caused actually as well by uh, electricity pylons coming down and uh, roads blocked, <laughs> you know, a whole lot of uh, chaos caused by the storm, as you can imagine. Cape Town is the only city in the world that's astride two oceans. We have got the warm Indian Ocean and the cold Atlantic Ocean meeting at Cape Town, which is why the Portuguese explorers who first came to the Cape over 500 years ago called it the Cape of Storms. Hmm. But that wasn't good for tourism, so the Dutch renamed it the Cape of Good Hope. That's very interesting. Yeah, well, it's a delight to have you on with us today, all the way from Cape Town, South Africa. And to get us started, um, you know, uh, America here is... Uh, coming into the uh, Independence Day celebrations and looking back at our history and, you know, independence from Great Britain and all of that. And um, do you have any insights or comments about America's independence? You know, you're from the outside looking in. Um, and also, what is the, it's kind of an obvious answer, but we need to hear it. What is the, the true uh, foundation of freedom? Well, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever that uh, the true foundation of freedom has got to be the scriptures, the word of God. We have such an attack on civilization right now. And as Christians, this year we, we are remembering the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation, which Dr. Martin Luther really launched on 1517, nailing those 95 theses on the church door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, it's out of that that our great Protestant countries grew, uh, the greatest countries in history in terms of industrial might, in terms of economic productivity. It's the Protestant work ethic that made Holland, Germany, Great Britain, Scandinavia, the United States, America, Canada, South Africa, the powerhouses that they have been economically. Sadly, we've long uh, departed from the great biblical roots and the great spiritual foundations that made our countries great. And so, what we are seeing is, is a decaying of the Christian civilization that we're still seeing a lot of the fruits of it, a lot of the benefits, but it's like a cut flower generation. And uh, where once the, the flower's been cut from its, its roots, uh, it may still show some beauty for a time, but the life has been cut out and it cannot continue to survive uh, for long and it will wilt. And uh, we're seeing that. Uh, our society is definitely being attacked and I, I look at so many of the great 
foundations that were laid by your founding fathers and how they emphasized that the uh, republic that they had produced was only workable for a God-fearing, Bible-believing population that is wholly inadequate for any other. Mm -hmm. And this is the point. The, the American Republic worked and flourished and was a blessing to the world when the people were God-fearing. And I think in 1830, uh, Alex de Tocqueville from France wrote Democracy in America, and he made the comment, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Mm. That was very insightful and prophetic. Um, you, you just look at so much of what your, your early founding fathers said. And if anyone hasn't visited recently uh, the uh, Thomas Jefferson Memorial and, and just seen what's written in the marble and the walls, I tremble when I think that there is a God in heaven who judges nations. And, you know, this from Thomas Jefferson, who people try to say was a deist, but uh, he he understood that there's a God who determines uh, the destinies of nations, and he, he trembled in fear, uh, realizing that, that we, of course, are not a righteous people, and we need God's grace. So uh, those people, some think that the power of America lies in its constitution or in its forms of government. I think they're missing the whole point. Uh, those things are only shadows. They're structures. The fruit, the foundation, the root of what makes America free and prosperous, productive, and a blessing is only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures. So insofar as America is true to that, America will be a blessing. Insofar as America is not true to these scriptural, spiritual foundations, it will be a burden and a curse. Yeah, that's so true, so true. It just weighs heavy on our heart as we see the, the need in America for uh, revival and reformation, and uh, during these next four years, you know, we've had a change in guard, as it were, at, in the presidency and uh, leadership. We, we are just praying that God will send a revival, because that is our only hope. Yes, it is. Um, and, of course, a revival and reformation really go together, because while revival is a sovereign move of Almighty God, Reformation is our duty. So mm. none of us can organize or plan or bring about a revival. So true. We can pray for it, but only God can send it. Uh, but Reformation is something we can do because Reformation is when we go back to the Bible, when we get serious about rebuilding our lives, our communities, our churches, our countries on the scriptures, on the clear, revealed teachings of the Word of God. And so um, often, if you look in the scriptures, you can see that especially throughout the Old Testament, as kings turned back to the Word of God, and as they were busy doing a reformation, a spiritual awakening often resulted. So you read in the days of King Asa and Josiah, how there were moves to remove the idols, to destroy the high places where, where babies were, were sacrificed, the Asherah poles, which were, of course, pornographic uh, displays, uh, to remove the perverts from the land, to try and bring justice and righteousness into society. God often blessed the humble, inadequate attempts to try and restructure society in accordance with the law and the word of God with a spiritual awakening. And so I think that's what we see also in history, and that when the church gets serious about the Bible and about prayer and missions and evangelism, uh, that often God is, has blessed with a tremendous spiritual revival beyond what we could have imagined. And uh, we have seen it even in our own country in 1860, the 
the revival had occurred in the days of Andrew Murray in our country, and you had in 1858-1859 out of prayer meetings in New York, tremendous awakening in the days of Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in, in the 1730s. You had a phenomenal great awakening, great evangelical awakening. And in the days of Wesley and Whitfield in England, there, there have been times that we have seen that as people try to get serious about missions and evangelism and prayer, that God has been gracious to send a revival. And so, uh, in a one sense, it's absolutely true. Our only hope is revival, yes. But uh, often God's waiting for us to do something first. And yeah. while it doesn't guarantee it, it's, it's as we get serious about God and his word and, and prayer, uh, he often is gracious to send the revival we desperately need. Now, you've been involved in many missionary outreaches. Not only did you study missions, I believe you got your doctorate in missiology and another honorary doctorate in divinity, but you're out in the world. you got feet on the ground doing stuff for the Lord by his strength. Um, as you go forward, maybe you can tell us a story or two of outreaches into an area where um, you wouldn't think that any headway would be made. And some people's eschatology would tell you, there's no way, things are getting worse and worse. But do you have any accounts of what has happened um, that the Lord has led you through? Yes, indeed. Uh, many. And uh, it, it's been tremendous. For example, my very first mission field was Mozambique. Uh, 35 years ago, I crossed the border into communist Mozambique where the, where the church was completely crushed and nobody under 18 allowed in churches, no baptisms for anyone under 18, no Bibles allowed, not one missionary in the whole country of Mozambique. It was a communist country where there wasn't even, they, they did not even allow a Bible into the country. Mm. According to Operation World, there was not even one Bible for a thousand churchgoers in the country, which is just staggering. That's how bad it was. So that was the first mission field God led me into. And uh, after my military service, where we were praying through Operation World and praying for our neighboring countries and praying for our enemies, God led me to recruit some Christians from a military background to smuggle Bibles <laughs> into our communist neighbors. We were at war with Mozambique and Angola, Zimbabwe, Zambia, the frontline states, hence our name, Frontline Fellowship. So we, we uh, were involved in this and Today, I must say, it's absolutely extraordinary. Just last year, my daughter went on a mission to Mozambique and just reported how it's completely open to the gospel. In fact, uh, I went there a few years ago and was astounded to see a country where they had once destroyed or confiscated 8,000 churches. Mm. Today, they've handed those churches or areas back. Uh, they've, they've, uh, today, you can open Christian schools in Mozambique freely without almost any government paperwork or restrictions. And... Uh, Bibles, missionaries allowed in. Um, so what was once the least evangelized country in the Southern Hemisphere, with less than 4% Protestants in the entire country, that, that's 35 years ago when our mission began. Mm. Today there's 34% Protestants and Evangelicals Wonderful. in Mozambique, from 4 to 34% mm. in, in, in uh, just a generation. So that's one great victory. Uh, in Angola, I remember a, a church which the communists came into, Chilisa Evangelical Church. 1977, Cuban troops came into this church, and they drove cattle into the church and said, you worship three gods, we have them right here. And the pastor stood up and rebuked them, and he was shot dead. His elders stood up to challenge these people. They machine-gunned them to death. The congregation fled. 150 churchgoers were murdered inside the walls or just outside the walls of Chilis Evangelical Church that day. And 
Then they burned the church, they burned the Bibles, they burned the hymn books, they made a bonfire with pews and pulpits and the Lord's table, mm. and that entire church was, was gutted, and I've seen it in its devastated state. Mm. But I've seen it since, rebuilt, restored, rededicated the Lord, more people outside the church and in it, packed to overflowing, a phoenix rising from the ashes, Chalice Evangelical Church being used for the worship of God again today. And I could take you to numerous churches in Angola, Mozambique, Sudan, the Congo, Zimbabwe, all the way up to Nigeria and, and Nuba Mountains. Churches have been bombed, burned down, destroyed, rebuilt. And even Eastern Europe. I've, I've had the joy of smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe back during the Cold War years when the Iron Curtain was up, when it took hours to get through the, the border posts like Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin or into Romania. And I've ministered as far as Poland north down to Albania in the south and all the countries in between, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, uh, Poland, uh, East Germany, and uh, uh, extraordinary experiences. This one church, Golgotha Baptist Church in Romania, uh, it was taken by the communists when they seized power after the Second World War, and they turned it into a bottling factory. Well, after the Christmas Revolution, which overthrew Ceausescu, the communist dictator of, mm -hmm. of Romania, uh, the church took the, the building back, and I was in there for the first services. They were rededicating it to the Lord. And it was still, you could see it had been used as a factory. It, it, was, it was not in a good state. But today it's a beautiful church, Gold God's a Baptist church. And just another example of how Jesus Christ is building his church. And Amen. the gates cannot prevail against it. Amen. I've, I've got a, a story that, that's probably the most extraordinary I've ever come across. Uh, and that's in, in Moscow itself. Now, you know, if you go to Red Square, on the one side of Red Square, you've got St. Basil's Cathedral, and on the other, you've got uh, Lenin's tomb. <laughs> and <laughs> you, you know how, how these atheists have been for over seven years trudging past this pyramid-type structure. It's, it's like a based on an old Egyptian pyramid, and inside there's the bones of Lenin. And, uh, well, there's their god, and he's obviously dead. And uh, But on the other side, the people on a Easter Sunday uh, at St. Basil's will be walking around saying, where is he? He is not here. Where is he? <laughs> he is not here. Where is he? He is not here. And then the minister will shout out, Christ is risen. And the entire congregation resounds, he is risen indeed. And it was explained to me how during even the darkest days of the revolution, because St. Basil's is one of the only, there was a time when of the 50,000 churches in the whole of Russia, not even 200 were left. There was about 135 left. They'd closed 49,000 churches forcibly. But St. Basil's, because it was right in the center of Moscow, they left it alone because they had to have one church to show tourists that, you know, we've got some religious freedom here. Mm -hmm. So it was the one church in Moscow at one time. <laughs> and so you could just imagine these poor atheists at the other end of the, uh, the Red Square looking back over their shoulders as they're about to see their dead God to hear, Christ is risen. <laughs> And so at uh, many of these um, uh, schools, they had these atheists coming, giving them uh, all kinds of indoctrination lessons. So uh, it was described to me how uh, after the cosmonaut, Yuri Gillen, uh, went up to, to uh, Sputnik and outer space and did a quick circuit around the world, came back. He went on a propaganda tour around the school saying, I've been into the heavens and I can tell you God does not exist. Which, considering the incredibly short span of space that this little Sputnik went in, and the vastness of space, that's a pretty <laughs> pathetic answer. But, but uh, at least at one school, a brave little girl stood up and said, but comrade, the Bible says 
only the pure in heart will see God. Mm. And then another school, I'm told that after some atheist had given his commissar lecture, he said, does anybody have anything to say? I mean, he just demolished Christianity. There's no God. Atheism is victorious. And he sat down smugly, and one young boy stood up in the school and shouted out, Christ is risen. And the entire school thundered, Christ <laughs> is risen indeed. You could just imagine these, these poor atheists just spent years indoctrinating the people, just, you know, having their heads in their hands, thinking, what more can we do? Well, just 900 meters uh, northeast of Red Square, there is the Lubyanka. Uh, Lubyanka was once a monastery, and it became the notorious headquarters of the KGB. And the Lubyanka, if you ever heard you called to the Lubyanka, or so-and-so has gone to the Lubyanka, your, your blood would run cold. Mm. Because the Lubyanka is where thousands of Christians were interrogated, tortured, and murdered. Mm. And outside the Lubyanka was a statue of Felix Dzensky, the founder of the Cheka, which later became the NKVD, which later became the KGB, the hated secret police. Mm. And so uh, this statue of Dzinski is right in the middle of, of Lubyanka Square on this big circle that all the traffic would go around. Now, if you go just 900 meters northeast of Red Square to Lubyanka uh, Square, today you won't see the statue. The statue is gone. The statue was removed in 1991. The people removed the statue. And there's something in that square instead, and it's a simple stone. And it's not just any stone. It's a stone from Solovetsky Island, where Solovetsky Monastery was, which is right up in the Arctic Circle in the White Sea, you know, where they have six-month nights and six-month day. Mm -hmm. And the uh, it was the first prototype concentration camp of the Soviet Union. Oh. The communists shot to death 95,000 ministers of the gospel oh. Solovetsky Island in the Solovetsky Monastery, which they turned to the first concentration camp, including the archbishop, the metropolitan, all at it. And they brought a stone from Solovetsky Monastery and have put it in the square where the statue used to be. And you just think of the symbolism, the statue and the stone. Daniel's vision, a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it in pieces. And a stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth and it'll stand forever. So this, the statue in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, which symbolizes all the empires of the world, is struck by a stone. The mm. stone which the builders rejected as worthless has become the chief cornerstone. And Jesus said, whoever falls on that stone will be cut to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to dust. And this is what we see in the performance of Luke 20, Matthew 21, Daniel 2. The statue is gone and the stone remains. And it comes from the first prototype concentration camp. You know, when you go to Russia today, you see so many examples of the victory of Christ. Because mm. the great... Uh, the, the greatest uh, church in Russia, the third largest church in the world at, the, at that time, was uh, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, which was built to celebrate the victory over Napoleon Bonaparte's armies in 1812. And Stalin ordered that this great church, the third largest church in the world at the time, be dynamited, destroyed in 1931. And he was going to build a new Tower of Babel pyramid-type buttress structure with a statue and idol of Lenin on top with his fist shaking in the face of God. Mm. Well, you go there today, and they've rebuilt to the exact specifications the Cathedral of Christ <laughs> the Savior. And it stands where they had wanted to have this, this palace of atheism, as they called it. And 
today you see so many examples. There are 200 churches being rebuilt in Moscow right now. Oh, wonderful. And the, the government in Russia is now printing Bibles. We used to smuggle Bibles into Russia. They now print Bibles in, in Russia. And there's just so much example that 70 years of atheistic propaganda, seven years of violent communist persecution failed to exterminate the vibrant Christian faith of the Russian people. Jesus Christ said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I have personally ministered in scores of churches that were once confiscated or destroyed or bombed, which have now been rebuilt. And I, I must say, this, this one in Russia has got to be the most spectacular example but we can think of other humble examples of churches that were once destroyed by atheists, Muslim jihadists, or communist terrorists, which are being rebuilt today. And that just shows us that there's, there's no reason for us to despair, because the victory of Christ's kingdom is absolutely assured. Mm. Yeah, you really uh, get the impression um, from Scripture and also all your stories that gospel advance is really unstoppable. There may be temporary setbacks. It may last for a generation or two, but overall there's this advance of the kingdom of God. That is so. And you just think how there's so many prophecies in Scripture. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as mm-hmm. the waters cover the sea. Now, I used to think, oh, well, the waters cover two-thirds of the world's land surface, so we could expect the world to be two-thirds <laughs> evangelized. That's pretty positive. But it doesn't actually say as the waters cover the earth. It says as the waters cover the sea. Right. And how much of the sea is covered in water? Well, pretty much 100%. <laughs> so so what, what the Scripture is saying, huh, the Lord will destroy all the gods of the land, and all the kings of the earth will bow down, and every nation will worship him, each in his own, own land. There's so much in the Scripture that still is to be fulfilled. And when you see a victory over atheism, like we have seen in the old Soviet Union, Romania, in Bulgaria, in Czechoslovakia, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland. There's so many countries that you could mention. Albania, where they declared the first truly atheistic country in in the world. And today the church is vibrant. So there is no doubt that we're seeing some glimmers of the great victory that's still to come. But it should encourage us and it should also rebuke us. Because today, if I was to ask you, where in Europe will you find the largest number of Bible-believing born-again Christians? Now, I'm not talking about percentage of the population, but numbers. And the answer is Russia. Russia's mm. got the largest number of Bible-believing born-again Christians in Europe. Second largest number, Ukraine. Mm. Third largest, Romania. Now, what do these countries have in common? These are the countries that were all behind the Iron Curtain and suffered some of the worst persecution. And today, you've got a higher church attendance in places like Ukraine, Romania, and Russia, than you have in Britain or France. Amazing. And this tells me that violent persecution is less deadly to the church than seduction, materialism, compromise. The Western decadence has done more damage to the church than all the violent persecution of the communist East Oh, Europe. yes. I've ministered to persecute church now for 35 years. I've ministered in 36 countries. Uh, all over Africa and and Europe, East and West. And there's no doubt to me that the churches are more vibrant in the countries where the persecution raged violently and the churches are in more trouble in what we should call the free and democratic countries, Mm. which should really be a wake-up call to us. There's no reason for us to give up the fight or despair, 
But there's every reason for us to really say what is wrong that we seem to be able to handle persecution, but we're not doing too well under temptation and distraction in the West. You know, uh, in the last two minutes remaining, I also uh, recall that you served in the South African Defense Force, and you know, you might say, well, that has nothing to do with the gospel, but I have a hunch that the lessons you learned there, the Lord used later on in missionary endeavors. Oh, definitely. Uh, in fact, our mission began with me making a stand. I was told by a missionary, make, a, make your stand for Christ early in the army. And so the first Sunday I asked the chapel if I could speak, and I stood up and I turned to the 600 men in our company. We would soon be whittled down to 120, but at that stage we had 600. Mm. And I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, and I want to honor him in my next few years. <laughs> Anyone else feels the same? Please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. Amen. And that's where our mission began. Frontline fellowship began in the South African Army, praying and studying the Bible every night. And that's where God gave us the vision. And I must say, it, it was just extraordinary to see God move. And we had experience of God's protection and his blessing. And we saw some of the worst enemies of the gospel in our units converted to Christ. And so, yes, uh, I would say that was part of my missionary training. You know, if someone wants to learn more, Peter, where can they go on the internet to uh, read more about uh, what you've written? Yes, frontline.org.za uh, or ZA. So www.frontline, that's F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E.org.za. So our email is mission at frontline.org.za and the web frontline.org.za. And on social media, you'll also find Frontline. Oh, beautiful. Today we've been talking with Dr. Peter Hammond. He is the founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. Peter, God bless you, my dear brother, and thank you so much for joining us today. Most welcome. Thank you, Dan. God bless. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.